Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Hillborn. Uh, we'll be talking about um, her work and her new book, Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret That Poisoned My Farming Community. And most, as most of you know, I love taking photographs of pollinators, so this particular book really kind of resonated with me and, you know, kind of brought up some um, warning signs for us to pay attention to. So, um, as an environmental scientist trained to investigate disease outbreaks, Elizabeth Hilborn rose to the challenge. Step by step, day by day, despite facing headwinds from skeptical neighbors, environmental experts, and agricultural consultants, she assembled information. Her observations provided a framework, a timeline to explain the evidence she had collected. The chemicals found in her water samples showed, beyond any doubt, that not only her farm, but her greater farming community was at risk from toxic chemicals that traveled with rainwater over the land, into the water, and deep within the soil. Elizabeth was given a front row seat to the insect apocalypse. Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn is a writer, a scientist, and a veterinarian with expertise in honey bee medicine. For decades, she's grown fruits and vegetables for her family and the local community. Her scientific reports in epidemiology and environmental health science focus on the health effects associated with water pollution, emerging infections, and extreme weather events. She has served as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellow at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and is a Senior Staff Scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Research and Development. For more information, you can visit Elizabeth's website, which is elizabethhillborn.com. That's Elizabeth, H-I-L-B-O-R-N.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Elizabeth to the show. Good day, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure, and uh, I enjoyed very much reading your book. Um, you know, it, it uh, restoring Eden. You know, refers to the Eden River there up in uh, North Carolina. And you know, as I mentioned before we came on, I used to live in Durham for a while, so I'm very familiar with the river and, and that area. So that added even more uh, context to your book. So you know, it was really oh, that's good reading. Lovely. Yeah. So that you know, as I mentioned, I mean, you have quite an extensive background in the science of um, bees and pollinators and, and such. Uh, so, would you mind sharing with the listeners kind of a little bit more um, about you know how you got to that point? I, I remember reading in your book you said you know as, as a young girl that uh, you mentioned that you wanted to be a veterinarian when you grew up and we were kind of met with uh, well that's not what girls do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm dating myself, but uh, I definitely <laughs> grew up in a time where most veterinarians were men. I don't think I met a female veterinarian until I was, you know, an adult. Um, so I didn't really have a role model. I just was attracted to the work because, you know, I loved the animals. I wanted to serve them. And um, even though I... I kind of developed my career step by step because I put myself through school back when you could still do that. <laughs> and I got a nursing degree. 
so that I could work my way through school because I, I wasn't able to do so, you know, as a serving tables and all the other things I tried to do to support myself. So I got, I worked as an RN throughout school, but my goal was always to be a veterinarian. So I gained perspective. I, I graduated as an older student and I was able to integrate my nursing practice and my veterinary practice and put it to work in environmental public health. So I, I actually use all my training, which is really cool, but I had never worked as a clinical veterinarian treating animals in my own practice until 2017. The FDA changed rules for how livestock could receive antibiotics that are also used in human medicine. And I saw an opportunity to work with my passion. I've been growing fruit all my adult life, and I thought, I can serve pollinators this way. And so I started my first practice as a honeybee veterinarian in early 2017. So that's kind of how it all came together. I guess like most people's lives, it's never... It's never a direct line. People wander around and figure it out, and that's certainly what I did. Yeah, that, that happens a lot, <laughs> where, yeah. where it's a circuitous route, um, but, but you end up, you know, where you need to be, when you need to be. So Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. So now um, the book talks about, you know, your work at, you know, discovering um, what kind of happened to the disappearance of, of uh, bees and, and insects and such in you, on your farm. But can you tell us kind of what was, tell us about that, the event, you know, the, I believe it was 2017 with the Eden River, that kind of set things, I guess, into motion, so to speak. Yeah. So let me back up to just before the event. So okay. In January, I was studying a lot about honeybees because I'd never kept bees, and yet I had to know enough to support beekeepers in what they needed to maintain the health of their colonies. And during that process of study and really diving deep into pollinators, I had my orchard here. So in March, I was out taking photographs of the incredible diversity of pollinators. And I learned so much, Robert. It wasn't just our, you know, some of our 3,600 native bees that we have in the United States, but it was flies and wasps and beetles and ants. And there, were, there was a whole community of insect life. And then I would see hummingbirds come down and work with uh, flowers. So I just really was impressed in March of um, reviewing my photographs and realizing it is so much bigger than bees, and bees are so much bigger than honeybees. And I was very grateful for this native community of animals that was supporting our food production. So... That same year, in late April, we had a flood. We lived near a river, and the river floods once or twice a year. It's just a normal occurrence. And after floods, the um, old drainage ditches that were built in the floodplain fill with water, and they become temporary wetlands. And the frogs love it because when there is still warm fish-free water, all the amphibians come out and breed because their eggs don't get eaten. So those waters are typically full of frogs and salamanders and dragonflies all around, and it's just a beautiful environment. So I always look forward to visiting the wetland after a flood. And that year, I was down working in the fields, and I stopped by the wetland swale, to watch tadpoles as a treat to myself after all my hard work. <laughs> and as I approached the water, it, just, it was different. It was really quiet. No frogs were jumping into the water. 
I didn't see any dragonflies. And then when I looked deep into the water, I was shocked to find tea brown water covered with a gray scum. And as I looked closer, I found dead animals on the scum and laying beside the water. So we'd lived here for well over a decade. That was a real shock. I'd never seen anything like that. Um, normally, after a flood, the wetlands just full of life. So it was a big change. Yeah, that you know that kind of thing is. I mean, it's shocking. You know, um, in your book, you were, there was one point you were talking about the, the songs of the frogs. You know, the choir of the frogs. Um, right, right behind my place is a, a pond, and and you know, there's you know, virtually every night there's this chorus of frogs doing their things, and it actually kind of serves as some white noise for me, you know, going to sleep. But this summer. I haven't heard them, and I don't, I don't know what is going on, and it's, it's it's very odd. You know, when you're you're used to sounds of nature, you know, for a period of time, and then they're gone. You know, it's rather startling. It is. I was reading recently about how bird song reassures us because birds are vocal when all is well, and I feel that way about frogs too. But on a larger scale, frogs are really, really sensitive to environmental contaminants. So if you have frogs singing in a water body near you in the springtime when they're breeding or in early summer, that's a really reassuring sound. So I, I understand what you're saying. It's when you don't hear it and you're used to it, it's like, uh-oh, what's happened? Yeah, it is. And so now, um, you know, one of the themes in your book, Restoring Eden, um, addresses, you know, toxic pesticides um, and the degradation of nature. So can you tell us um, a, a bit about, you know, the idea of how impactful, you know, such um, influences are just on all of us, whether or not, you know, we're, you know, tuned into nature or even even aware of all the nature that goes around us. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I guess maybe even the state of, you know, toxicity um, happening? Um, so you really have to take where I sit into account <laughs> okay. because I've just gone through this huge trauma and I've mostly dealt with it, but I'm still coming to equilibrium after this event. So as a fruit grower, I have used pesticides in my fruit growing practice and I've always used them sparingly because I knew they could hurt pollinators. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I see out in um, people who may not be farmers or who may not use pesticides is that insecticides, when we use them to control pests like mosquitoes, they're not selective. They can kill all kinds of insects. So... I think that's a really important take-home message that when we use these really potent tools, I believe we need to be using them selectively and sparingly. For example, if I maintain hygiene in my orchard, I pick up dropped fruit, I interrupt insects' life cycle by not supporting pests breeding in my orchard, I can really, really reduce the number of insects, pets insects, that I have to deal with. But if I just go to insecticides right away and just attack them with the biggest tool I have, I end up hurting myself. So after this event, um, when after the wetland was poisoned, the upland flying insects all left, and for many years after the event, we had no apples, no pears, 
uh, no blueberries because the, all the flying insect pollinators were gone. So I've come to a place in my life now where I see pesticides in general and insecticides in particular as very potent tools that should be used as a last resort. And that's not how they're being used now. They, um, our, our agricultural model has changed away from using pesticides when they're needed to a model of using pesticides every time a crop is planted. So a lot of our row crops have, um, when they're being produced, they have very potent pesticides in the seed, a mixture of insecticides and fungicides that tend to run off into the environment. They're water-soluble. There's also a dust that's produced uh, when they're planted, and that can float off in the air and contaminate plants around it. And they tend to be not only water-soluble, but very potent, very small amounts of the, the insecticide in particular can kill a lot of insects. So um, Aaron Hodgson of Iowa State, I believe, wrote a uh, bulletin and she described a single corn seed has just over a milligram of an insecticide on it and one corn seed is potent enough to kill 80,000 honeybees. And an acre of corn starts with 30,000 seeds. And 90%... You know, when I, when I read that statistic, I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. Know, it was like... Yeah. I, I mean, I was... Because, you know, yeah. Yeah. I know. I sat down when I read that. I, I agree. Uh, an yeah. acre of corn starts with 30,000 seeds, and over 90% of the cornfields in the United States are being grown that way. So chances are you see a cornfield, there's a very potent insecticide that flies away from the cornfield in the air around the surrounding vegetation, uh, runs off in the water, stays in the soil, and they're persistent. Um, The one that contaminated our wetland um, has a half-life of about up to three years. It can be lower. It totally depends on soil conditions, but mm-hmm. it um, it can really um, affect animals for more than one year, even after it stopped being used. Wow. And it's now, systemic. Well, Let me just get this last yeah. thing in, and then I'll stop. Sure, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You got me going. Um, it's <laughs> systemic, meaning that whatever plant takes up the water contaminated with the insecticides, it's incorporated into the whole plant so that when pollinators feed on the pollen or the nectar or if animals chew on the leaves, they're also exposed to the insecticides so that the flowing off the field, the flying through the air and drifting um, can affect plants nearby, trees, um, perennial plants, the flowers that pollinators need to live. Wow. You know, I mean, it's the scope and breadth of impact is just amazing. When, when you, you know, I mean, it's amazing that we even have any any bees left. I mean, truly, when you think about, you know, the just the sheer quantity um, of insecticide. Now, um, when you were talking about insecticides in the book, you used the term neonics, um, I believe. Neonic insecticide. Can you what what is that? What does that mean? So, so a new class of insecticides. This is my understanding. This is not my area okay. of expertise. But you know, diving deep, trying to understand this experience. Um, mm-hmm. A new class of insecticides was developed. I want to say the 1970s. They are nicotine-like, and they. Attached the nicotine receptor that animals have, we have them, insects have them, but they were developed to be more specific to the insect receptors. So they were initially seen as this 
wonderful tool because they're less toxic to people, more toxic to insects, and they're very potent, so you need less of them. So those are wonderful, useful properties for dealing with crop pests. But in the early 2000s, they started being incorporated into crop seed as a coating so that when the farmer buys seed, it's coated with these insecticides and typically some fungicides. So it's it's on every crop the farmer's planting, whether they need the protection or not. Um, so, and, and I pronounce them neonicotinoids or neonics for short. Neonics, okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, I had, I had never heard of that, and, and as I was reading, I just wanted to kind of learn a little bit more about that. Um, now, speaking of insecticides, um, in your book, you start to talk about Roundup um, and, you know, your experience using Roundup, and it initially was like kind of Roundup light, you know what I mean, in the sense that, you know, from what we've heard, you know, some of the, um, you know, the, the impact of that on plants and things. Um, and from my understanding of what I read is, is that you, you kind of maybe changed your view of that product um, a bit. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what your experience is with that and maybe um, what you've learned that might have, may have shifted your perception of that product? Yeah. So I was very familiar with Roundup. It was developed in the 1970s. And use has just exploded. I believe it's the most commonly used pesticide in the world. And with the neonics being the most commonly used insecticide in the world. So these are, these are chemicals with big global impacts. So I've used Roundup sparingly until I, we got this farm. And then I was like, wow, there are a lot of things I can get rid of invasive plants. I can keep my fence line clear. We have an electric fence for the livestock. And if grass grows up or trees grow up on the fence, they'll short it out. Then the livestock can just push through it and go to better pastures, so to speak. But um, So I started maintaining my fence lines with Roundup, and I noticed that there was a, a native garlic that didn't die and then it started creeping into the pasture and displacing the grass and I rec that's how I interpreted that I was like oh well you know I'm I'm favoring the growth of this unwanted plant by using a chemical that it's resistant to so I stopped using Roundup for that and went to clipping the grass you know I have these long head shears and it was really just as fast to walk along and just clip the the grass down. Um, so I started, I transitioned to that because of that observation. But I would say we still use Roundup for woody plants. Like we have these invasive tree of heaven plants mm-hmm. here in the east. And um, they, they are not super susceptible to Roundup. Like they, they are very hardy invasives, but... If you catch them young and keep at them, we can cut them and then just apply Roundup just to that open wound. Mm-hmm. And that way it's very local, but we're still mm-hmm. using it. It's a very, like I said, pesticides, they're very potent tools that I believe should be used sparingly now. And that's yeah. what we do with yeah. Roundup. Good, good. Okay, I just wanted to throw that out there because I, you know, I knew, you know, that there were, you know, talk, you know, surrounding its use, you know, uh, pro and con, you know, and, and yeah. see the advertising a lot <laughs> about that because when when I dove deep into this experience, I learned things that were so counterintuitive to what I'd thought I knew about Roundup. And one of the things I learned 
was that it doesn't always stay where it's sprayed. Like that was my walking around understanding was if I spray Roundup in the environment and say I, I'm killing poison ivy near my front door, um, that it stays on the poison ivy, it will degrade quickly and not be a problem to surrounding vegetation. My experience in the wetland was showed me very differently that if Roundup's on bare soil, it does tend to degrade quickly because there's a lot of microbial activity that can break it down. But after you spray it, even after it's dried, if that soil becomes saturated with water, if we have a heavy rain or a flood, the Roundup flows again. It attaches to the water and it moves off-site. So even if you're not spraying water near a wetland, like your frogs, you're talking about your pond, like they're not there, if someone applied Roundup uphill from the pond, even though it's not touching the water, during a heavy rain, it could flow down and harm the frogs. So that was one thing I learned that was totally new to me, was that it moves around in the environment. And it's a common contaminant in surface waters. It can also move down through the soil into groundwater. It's taken up vapor in the atmosphere, and it rains back down on us. So we're kind of swimming in the stuff now because we use so much of it. Um, the other thing I learned that I had no idea, <laughs> this was quite a, a journey of discovery, Robert. Um, um, well, your book was for me. <laughs> when you spray the plant with Roundup, the plant holds it. It doesn't break down like it would on bare soil. And we saw that from a uh, neighbor had started farming the fields uphill of us, um, 2014, I believe, 2013. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but anyway, um, in 2015, he'd grown a wheat crop, and somehow the wheat straw had gotten sprayed with Roundup. I don't know if he used it to dry the crop, but when that wheat straw came onto our property, it was still contaminated with Roundup. It was retaining Roundup for years after it was sprayed because although Roundup breaks down quickly on uh, bare soil, it can be retained by plant material until it's fully broken down. So that was a real shock. I had a wheat straw in the water that was releasing the chemical, and I'm using Roundup as shorthand for glyphosate, right. the active ingredient. Yeah, it was releasing the chemical back into the water, even though it had been years since it was sprayed. That was incredibly shocking to me. I, I had no idea that could happen. Wow. That is, that is just, it's, it's mind-boggling, you know. And, and like I you know, said, that I really learned a lot from, from reading your book, and, you know, it just... Um, now every time I go to photograph, I'm just—I have this new awareness of uh, delicate nature, um, you know, of the, the balance of nature that that we live in right at the moment. Yeah, and, yeah. I uh, I walk around thanking pollinators a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
by Radio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5 by 7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn, and we're talking about her new book, Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret That Poisoned My Farming Community. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is elizabethhilborn.com, and that's H-I-L-B-O-R-N.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Elizabeth. Hi. Okay, great. So, um, you know, as, as we were kind of leaving before break, you mentioned neighbors, you know, that, that one started, uh, uh, you know, farming, um, growing wheat. Um, so when you discovered this uh, insect apocalypse, uh, how, tell us about how you kind of, Worked with or approached your neighbors. I mean, because obviously, you know, they're they're farmers or, or um, other you know uh, types of you know uh, animal types of raising animals and that kind of thing. So, tell us tell us about you know kind of when you first approached people with your concern. What what was the general reaction? So uh, we'd lived in the community for quite a while before this happened, and. Our community is really important to us. We, we live in a very rural area, so our neighbors are far away, and, and people who live in rural areas understand that we're on our own. Like if something bad happens, we're on our own. We've had you know, severe weather events where we meet up and help each other out by taking down you know, taking wood off of roads so we can pass, helping each other out if a car or a truck gets in a ditch, if a tractor breaks down in a in a field and the flood's coming. We help each other out. Um, we're a community. So I know my neighbors very well and it was it's always been a priority to have very good relations with neighbors. And to be, to have a reciprocal relationship. Um, for example, I have a neighbor who loves plants as much as I do, and we're always trading plants and seeds back and forth. So, goodwill is spread around. I bring produce from my garden, you know, as gifts to people, and of course they reciprocate. So, that was the setting going into this. So when I found the dead, and I also knew the farmer who was leasing the fields upstream. I've known him since before we moved to this area. So when I found the dead animals, I knew the farmer had been down there before the flood preparing the fields. I didn't know what he'd done. I reached out to him right away. I said, hey, I heard you down in the fields before the flood. You know, what were you doing down there? What's happened so far? Is there anything that could inform why I'm seeing this dead wetland. And so he had told me that he'd prepared the fields by spraying Roundup to kill all the existing vegetation, waited and then planted the corn seed, waited and then injected nitrogen. I said, well, did you use any other pesticides? No, that was, that's it. 
So that's what I had to go on. And he was as puzzled as I was why the water was dead. So then I started reaching out farther and farther. But the the neighbor who owned the land, Mike, um, we've we share a love of wildlife, and so I called him just to keep him informed of what was going on and the fact that I was talking to the farmer who was leasing the land to, um, to make sure he was fully in the loop. But we spoke quite a bit about changes we'd seen over decades in the area with wildlife, and so we had a good pre-existing relationship. and. He was mystified as to why the wetland was dead and that there weren't frogs singing on his land either and what was happening. So I felt very supported in in a kind of a, a psychic sense, but nobody could tell me what was happening. So I reached out farther and farther you know, to experts to try to figure it out. But... My relationship with my neighbors was such that I told them I was investigating because, you know, I you don't kill a bunch of animals around a veterinarian and expect them not to notice <laughs> or not to uh-huh. do something about it. So I I'd collected water samples the day after I found the dead water. I had the presence of mind to collect water samples. And... So they knew all this was going on, and they were trying to help me. And I told them that, thank you so much for trying to help me, and when I figure this out, I'll let you know. And so that was where it got creepy. When I figured it out that it was related to agriculture, and, I mean, that's an economic activity, and that was my neighbor's land. And... You know, it was very, very awkward. It was, you know, I felt comfortable about what I'd found, but it had kind of emotional implications that were really, really difficult. And um, my neighbors were, were, you know, I met with some. I kind of prepared all these information packets. I was like, you tell me what you think about all this, but this is what I've figured out. And I gave them the information, and, um, you know, it, it hurt our relationship. It really did. Yeah. But my husband yeah. turned it around, actually. Um, there's there's a lot that happened that I go into in the book, but he turned it around. Finally, you know, we were kind of getting, not getting very far, and he said, you know, how would you feel if it if it was our land that was contaminating your land. Right. Like how, how can you look at it from that perspective? And that kind of that kind of turned it around, I think. So Yeah. Thank you, Howard. Yeah. Now with that you know, that is one of those, you know, difficult conversations certainly yeah. to have. Um and uh was it um was there um, a point where maybe there was a cooperative effort at kind of resolution, maybe looking for solutions or, or to prevent, you know, future contaminations? Yeah. So, you know, I worked closely um, with one of the neighbors was interested, like he was, he was, shocked to find out that modern pesticides could be so toxic because he grew up in a farming community and walking around cornfields there wasn't dead water everywhere and you know the one of the issues I think is that our pesticides have become more water soluble so it's it's a lot harder on our water is my understanding again this is not my area of expertise my understanding now is that the more water-soluble pesticides put a heavier burden of toxicity on our water. So wetlands, rivers, you know, we're losing our water insects, fish. Um, it's it's a real, you know, issue for water. But 
So this was new to all of us. We're kind of learning together. And so we put our heads together about what what could he grow, and we discussed multiple types of crops, like hay crops. And, and um, we live in an area with a lot of people who work with alternative methods to growing food, like regenerative mm-hmm. agriculture, agroecology. Um, some are are um, use organic methods, but they're not certified. Some people are organically certified, and it's it's a common thing now for people to be using different approaches, and we discussed some of those approaches. Um, so, yeah, it was a very collaborative effort, and uh, to date, to the best of my knowledge, no more of the um, neonics have been used down on the field, and I don't see the scum anymore, and we are starting to recover. Um, it's not like it used to be, but we're starting to get some insects back. I had a good blueberry crop this year, so I'm very grateful that we're in the recovery phase, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely been a collaborative type effort. Great. That's great. Now, when in the beginning of the book, after you discovered <laughs> discovered you know the problem, you and you mentioned you know kind of going to experts, um, and it seemed like um, you weren't getting a whole lot of cooperation, you know, at uh, you know investigative kind of um, departments that that should normally you know be interested in something like that happening. So can you tell us? Kind of, um, you know, what was your experience, you know, with, you know, local, you know, authorities, you know, when when you had that problem occur, when, when you brought it to their attention? Yeah, so that was really shocking to me. Um, I was so excited when I had a water quality expert come out within days of me taking the water samples. I was like, oh, this is great. He's going to know exactly what happened and we'll be able to fix it and it'll be all better and he came out and I was showing him the dead insects and the scum and he put um, an instrument called a sound into the water this is a electronic sensor that will give you readings like pH and uh, temperature and so he was Walking along using the sound, he says, oh, there's good dissolved oxygen here. The temperature's fine. The pH is fine. And during that visit, I was trailing him, watching him work, and we passed a part of the swale where there was a box turtle underwater, like hanging in the water column at this weird angle And she wasn't moving at all. Her eyes were open, and it was almost like an insect trapped in amber. It was eerie. And without thinking, all all I could think in my head was, oh, my gosh, she's in the water that killed the insects. And I reached into the water and pulled her out with a bare hand because I hadn't brought gloves. I had no, no reason to touch the water, but I did then when I took the turtle out. And she was stunned. She just sat on the bank, just stiff, and water dripping off of her. And I was like, this is bizarre. And um, as we're walking back, my hand started itching. My hand and forearm that had been in the water, and that started burning. And I mentioned it to the guy. I was like, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have touched the water. Now my arm is burning. And... He didn't say anything, and we keep walking. I said, "Well, are you going to take water samples?" And he said, "No, the you know the pH is fine. I don't smell sewage in your in your water. There's no reason to take samples." And he left. <laughs> I was just like, "What? <laughs> All these dead animals. I touch the water, and my arm is burning, and there's no reason to take samples." And it was only later that I realized, and this took me months to figure this out, because I was kind of getting this from a lot of people, like, 
when I reached out to ag experts, I didn't lose any livestock. I didn't have piles of honeybees dead. So they weren't really interested in wildlife. They were interested if I'd lost livestock or maybe if I'd had a crop damaged. They weren't interested in wildlife. And I learned later that the um, Clean Water Act exempts agricultural runoff from regulation. So the water quality expert who came down, there was no reason for him to take water samples. He couldn't spend his department's money. He had no, like, because it wasn't a regulated thing. Wow. It's just amazing. You know, um, yeah, and when I read, you know, about your experience in, in saving the turtle um, or, you know, retrieving the turtle, I don't even know if it was saved. But, um, I think she was and, okay. Uh, I went back to check on her okay. and she wasn't there, so... I'm, I'm okay. hopeful. <laughs> okay. I hold that in my heart that I that she's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah. sign. That's a good sign. Yeah, but but it was, you know, to me it's you know just another example of um, a bureaucracy that has you no know, questionable priorities. You know, I mean, in, in, in each of those, I mean, the idea of you know that. Um, worrying so much, or not concerned so much about wildlife and, and exempting, you know, agricultural runoff. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest, you know, contributors, you know, to the problem. And and to me, it's just it seems like it's just economics. You know, um, you know the the business of of life. You know, I mean, the, the farming and you know, and even livestock. You know, it's it's the business. So. You know, if, it, if it hurts business, we'll pay attention. But if it's you know, not you know, business-related, so to speak, it's not so important. Yeah, that's, that's the message I got. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's kind of what, as I was reading your book, that's kind of what, what it stood out to me. So, boy. And then that, you know, that's sad. You know, I mean, when we're thinking um, about just the interconnected connectedness of all things, you know, and recognizing that a negative impact on one part of life it may not seem like it would impact your life or our life, but, but it does. And, you know, it may be like a, a, a journey of a career, circuitous, taking various kinds of turns, twists and turns, but nonetheless it would come around. So, um, so one of the things I learned from this, is that it's not just a focus on business. It's a focus on short-term returns, short-term profit. Because if you think about business, it's tied in with people's livelihoods. Farmers have to use their resource, their soil, their water, the insect pollinators to produce food for us. Like, I know they buy inputs, you know, and but those are the basic resources that are available to farmers. And what I saw at my farm were the basic resources were being damaged by these practices. So the soil in the floodplain, the animals were gone, and it was just lifeless, like, Old pancake batter where all the bubbles have gone out of it. That's just oh, sitting yeah. there. Or like a thick pudding. There were no animals to aerate the soil or break down the organic matter. There were places where it was just slimy because the, all the, the soil microbes and all the life in a living soil, the bacteria and protozoa and insects and earthworms and arthropods and fungi, it it was gone. It was just, it was not the kind of agricultural soil that is going to um, produce a good crop. So the soil was damaged. And then I saw my pollinators disappear. And we know from areas around the world where pollinators have gone that you can bring in honeybees for a while, and that's like the 
you know, the default pollinator when right. the natives are gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's also an issue that once the honeybees, once it's too toxic for the honeybees, how are the crops going to be pollinated? A lot of our food requires pollination. And so I got a little deep dive into that because I just had no crops. I didn't have the time to hand pollinate, but that's the next step is right now hand pollination. In the United States, people are being encouraged to hand pollinate their squash and cucumbers because we've lost so many pollinators. There are parts of China where lightweight people climb the pear and apple trees during bloom season and hand-pollinate the orchards because the insects have gone. There are pollinator limitations, the macadamia crop in South Africa, the shea crop in West Africa, chocolate in Indonesia, apples in Europe, eggplant in India. People are hand-pollinating. So this is a, a global issue, and because this is such an important issue, it's attracted entrepreneurs who are developing robotic pollinators. Huh. And these robot drones can be, the vision is that they will be deployed in, in crop fields, orchards, and they will do the pollination because all of our insects have been killed off. So here's my problem with that. My problem is what about the farmer? Like, I think we should be thinking about food in a totally different way. We should be focusing on supporting the people who produce food. Like, how do you make it easy for them to make a living farming? How do you make it easy to support the resource so they can hand down healthy soil and water to their children and their grandchildren, and to focus on the consumer. Are we feeding people healthy, good food? Like that is the axis of agriculture as I envision it. We're supporting the resource, the environment, supporting the farmers, and supporting the consumers. And if you think about robotic pollination, it just boggles my mind because farmers are already buckling under the weight of economic hardship. Farm debt is at an all-time high, um, higher than the early 80s. And in the United States, people lost their farms. I mean, there were auctions, and it was a terrible time. Well, we're there again. Part of it's high interest rates. Part of it is high land prices, but the biggest thing that we have control over are the input costs. AgWeb reported in January this year that inputs for an acre of corn are adding up to over $1,000 per acre. That's fertilizer, seed, and pesticides. That's amazing. So to add... Okay, so you're growing, what's a crop that needs pollination? Oh, say sunflowers. You're growing sunflowers for sunflower oil or the seed. Um, Now we'll add another $100 an acre to buy honeybees to pollinate or to buy, you know, $200 an acre to buy robotic pollinators. Like how much weight can farmers take on their shoulders where we just keep making it harder and harder because we're degrading the resource. So I think yeah. if we focus on on keeping the resource healthy and resilient, we already know that living soil produces a soil that's more resilient to drought. It makes plants with better immune systems. When we strip all that away by using too many chemicals on our agricultural soil, we're we're damaging the resource and the crop. 
and the pharma. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we're almost down to the end of the show, Elizabeth, but there is one other topic I just wanted to throw in there, <laughs> and one that uh, sometimes doesn't get special attention, and that you noted in your book, called the shy things or the tiny things. <laughs> so can you talk about a little bit about, you know, how, you know, as we, you know, go through our daily lives, you know, these tiny things just, you know, kind of pass by and don't get the attention that really they really deserve. Yeah. So pollinators, right? We've been discussing insect pollinators, and some of them are quite small, just a few millimeters. But I think the living soil is another good example. I mean, this is a very life-rich medium that we we tend to disregard. We people may look at at soil and call it dirt. You know that. That is the cradle of our lives. That that topsoil um, produces the plants that capture the sunlight. Um, yeah, so I think I saw all the tiny things go away, and I saw that things didn't get broken down. So plant material stayed for years when it would typically be broken down. I saw pollination services crash. I um, I lost the beauty and companionship of walking around and seeing birds and butterflies and all the other life that makes living on Earth just such an absolute joy. Uh, that that went away, and we're part of a fabric, a community of life, and we're not smart enough to pick and choose like, oh, this group, we don't need this group. It doesn't work that way. We all depend on each other. And, you know, I had the opportunity to really notice all the small creatures that that keep us alive. Yeah, boy. And, you know, I, I try to, to pay attention, you know, when, when I'm out and about in my little nature walks, you know, um, you know, seeing, you know, whatever I can see. You know, big or small, you know, gets my attention. And and you're right, many of the times, you know, these small, you know, kind of seemingly insignificant little creatures play a major role in our um, the balance of our ecosystem. And, you know, and, you know we've seen, you know, um, examples where people go in and try and fix a problem by bringing in, you know, some, you know, some kind of um, animal or insect or whatever, you know, to try and fix the problem when, you know, only to find out a couple of years later that we created a bigger problem, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, I think of kudzu <laughs> in particular. You know, when I, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, the intent was good, but, but boy, you know, the kudzu structures in the south uh, on trees and poles and all that kind of thing, um, it just kind of, I just shake my head every time I, I drive by those. So, yeah. well, we're, we're down to the very end. So, Elizabeth, what do you hope that the, the reader is going to take away from reading Restoring Eden? I'd like the reader to take away that we, we all have the power to create the world we want to see. We can use our voices, we can use our actions, we can use our money to work together towards a a world where our children, our workers, our communities are supported with abundance and love. And um, I know that's my goal, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is, you know, I want to show that Everyone can plant some flowers that are pesticide-free to, to support local pollinators. Pollinators fly far. Everybody can do just a few pots of flowers, a section of the yard. Um, we can get to know our farmers and support the ones that are farming in a way that we'd like to see that as the future. So I think we all have a role to play, and, and I, I'm very optimistic and hopeful because there are so many people pulling together towards beauty, abundance, and love. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and, and I loved reading the book again because I'm one that too, um, you know, appreciates uh, our our friends, the pollinators, and and um, you know, it's um, it's always good to give attention um, to them and just to raise raise awareness. And, and like you say, we all can do something, you know, do our part. You know, it doesn't have to be huge and major and, you know, changing the, the whole, you know, world, but our own, you know, little piece of the world, we can take some actions to help out. Yes. Thank you so much for having me today. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Hilborn, and we've been talking about her, her new book, uh, Restoring Eden, Unearthing the Agribusiness Secret that Poisoned My Farming Community. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is elizabethhillborn.com. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, 